Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Janet B. I have recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. <laughs> Today, we are going to um, talk about resentments. But before we do, because there are a couple new people here who may still be struggling, um, I just want to tell you a few quick things about myself. I spent my first six and a half years in OA unable to get abstinent. Um, in those six and a half years, one time, I think I made it to two weeks. Most of the time or often, I couldn't make it to lunch without binging. I couldn't stop. Um, and I went to meetings and I had sponsors and I did a bunch of assignments. Um, and the problem was that the assignments I was given were more just like, admit you're powerless and now stick to a food plan. And it's like, well, if I were, if I'm powerless, how can you tell me to stick to a food plan? It doesn't make sense, right? You tell me I have no power and now you're saying have power over the food plan. And it really doesn't make sense. And that's not what the big book says and what our program teaches us. Our program teaches us that it will show us that this book and our fellows will show us how to get a relationship with a power greater than ourselves, which comes in, rewires our heart and removes the obsession. And there's like a protocol, like a 12 step protocol that makes this happen. So if you're new and you're struggling and you're like me and the way I was, it's like, oh, I tried this, you know, a hundred times and it hasn't worked. I always hold up my cell phone and say, you know, a hundred times I could try to take a picture by pushing the on off button. And then one day someone comes around and shows me, no, Janet, you're, you know, pushing the wrong button. And suddenly it doesn't matter if it's my first time trying to take a picture or my thousandth time, suddenly I can take pictures. So there are people here um, who have struggled and then recovered, I being one of them, I've been abstinent and free of the obsession over 30 years now because someone showed me how to work these steps. So there are people here who are willing and happy to do that because that's how we stay recovered by sharing it with other people. And also it's fun. Um, so with that being said, we are going to talk more about resentments. Now we talked about it out of the big book. And one of the good things about having a kind of standalone meeting that's not affiliated with anything is that we can bring in some outside material and talk about whatever we want to try to be helpful. So um, because the big book talks so much about resentments and how they're fatal, that they lead to our demise because they cut us off from the sunlight of the spirit. We're going to just spend an extra session on resentments. I mean, imagine a, a plant being cut off from the sunlight, it would die. And that's what happens to us spiritually if we live in resentment. And the big book tells us how to get rid of resentments. And as I said, we covered this in the chapter, How It Works. I just thought I'd share some like random remarks on resolving resentment. That is my feeble attempt at alliteration. Random remarks on resolving resentments. And more important, entering into a state of forgiveness. So how do we as compulsive eaters do that? I've list listed 10 things that I've mashed together, mainly from the big book and from the book, 
The Way to Power and Poise by E. Stanley Jones, um, whose work was studied by the founders of AA and clearly incorporated into the big book. So again, take what you want, leave the rest. I hope that this is helpful. Number one, look at why we're angry. I mean, we all do the check marks as to what's affected us. And that's, you know, let's be honest, that's the easiest column to fill out, right? We just check. But I think it deserves some thought because as E. Stanley Jones says, the basis of most resentment is a touchy, unsurrendered self. The fact that I have a resentment shows that there's a part of myself that's oversensitive because my will hasn't been fully surrendered to the will of God. When surrendered to the will of God, we throw off resentments as healthy skin throws off disease germs. Unless there's a cut in the skin, disease germs can't get in. So I started thinking about this, like with respect to the third column in our resentment inventory, like, you know, one thing that can get affected is our self-esteem. Well, that means I haven't surrendered to God the demand that others think of me a certain way or treat me a certain way. If I had, it really wouldn't bother me what other people said or thought about me um, or my ambitions. Again, if I fully surrendered my career to God, for example, it wouldn't matter so much if someone else got that promotion and not me. I would know that, like it says on page 63 of the big book, we had a new employer with a capital E, um, and this pro employer provides all I need if I stay close to him and perform his work well. So that tells me God will give me whatever I need, but I have to do two things. I have to stay close to him, prayer, meditation, spiritual reading to learn more about him and perform his work well, obedience. And then the work situation just works out. Um, I had an experience where I, you know, I, I'm an attorney and I left a law firm because I wasn't so thrilled with um, some of the values espoused there. And I went and I took a job working in the court system for $15,000 a year less. And this was, you know, I was young and that was kind of a decent amount of money, the difference, 15,000, but I felt it was the right thing to do. So I did. Unbeknownst to me, right around that time, my parents decided that as part of their estate planning, they would start giving me $18,000 a year. So that really taught me a lesson that if God is my employer with a capital E and he knows how much money I need, it may come from my job. It may come through another source, but if I'm staying close to him and performing his work well, I don't have to worry. I've got the employer with the capital E. And remember step four, where we inventory our resentments and our fears, it comes after step three. We only have the courage to do these painful moral inventories and look at our part because by this point we've surrendered to a God who we believe is all loving, all powerful and cares about us, right? By this point, I know that God's got my back. Um, and it's the same with like our personal and sex relations and our security. Basically, if something or someone threatens them, I really need to look to see where I haven't fully surrendered my right to something. 
Um, now, I qualify this by saying this is the basis of most resentments. Clearly, if someone has violence committed against her, let's be clear, I would never say, oh, your problem is an unsurrendered self. I'm talking about most of our run-of-the-mill resentments when you know people aren't as kind to us as we would like or aren't doing things the way that we would if we were running the universe. Second tip, um, realize that the person is perhaps spiritually sick. That's straight out of the big book. Now, again, this can get misused. I mean, I could probably label Mother Teresa as spiritually sick if she said something I didn't want to hear. But what about the times when someone isn't as spiritually as developed as I would like? It's always helpful to look at their story, their upbringing. So, for example, when I was a kid, my dad yelled a lot and he worked a crazy amount of hours. But when I really like dig deep, like walk a mile in their shoes, as the expression goes, I remembered my dad was physically abused by his father when he was a kid and his father didn't have a job. So the fact that my dad worked two jobs and only yelled and didn't hit us was major progress for my dad. And in God's eyes, he might actually be a saint. So it's helpful to remember that there's a little bit of good in the worst of us and a little bit of bad in the best of us. And here's a prayer that I find helpful. Um, Lord, this person is an infinitely precious child of yours and a spiritually developing person with flaws, just like I am. Please help me to relate to them with both these truths in mind so that I can always love, always forgive, and if necessary, set appropriate boundaries. And since we're talking about realizing that the other person is perhaps spiritually sick or spiritually developing, I think it's a good time to briefly touch on the point that forgiveness does not mean I have to be in a relationship with someone who is so spiritually sick that they are abusive. If someone is abusive to me, I need to forgive on the basis that they're spiritually sick, but I do not need to be in relationship with them. Um, number three, we don't stop with saying that the other person is spiritually sick. We resolutely look for our part in the resentment. And our part is never just, this is a spiritually sick person and I need to pray for him or her. In fact, like my sponsor once said, replace the term spiritually sick with spiritually developing or human, just like me. Otherwise, it's too easy for me to get on a spiritual hilltop and say, I'll pray for that poor spiritually sick person down there in the valley. Um, I have to really see my part. If someone was nasty to me, was I nasty to them first? If not, maybe my part is, I think what other people say about me is any of my business. And it isn't. People can think I'm nasty if they want. Um, if one of my kids is undisciplined, is my part that I was selfish and lazy in teaching them the right things? If I'm angry at how other people are acting, is my part that I think I have a right to decide how other per people think, what their values are, what they should say, and the decibel level at what they should say it? I have found that most of my resentments melt away when I see my part. 
And for me, my part is often that I simply want others to think, say, or do what I want them to. If I, res a, if I have a resentment because other people are thinking or talking badly about me, again, how I got the ball rolling is thinking, is saying, I made what other people say about me or think about me, my business, and it isn't. So many of our resentments go away if we realize that so many things aren't my business. And I like to think of it as like swimming in one of those, you know, lap pools where the lanes are roped off. And if I'm going into another lane, I'm not keeping my eyes on God at the end of my lane. So what other people think of me, decisions other people are making, the future are things that are none of my business and keep me from focusing on God and serving others. But let's say we do all this and we still have the resentment. Are there other things we can do? There are. Um, number four, we have to make up our minds, like school ourselves to realize that in this world, we are not going to escape injustice and pain. The big book talks about certain low spots and trials and tells us what to do when, not if, troubles come. The big book doesn't say we'll never have troubles. So if we believe that because we've given our lives to God, our lives going forward will be pain-free, we'll be guilty of that old enemy that always gets us into trouble, right? Expectations. But the big book tells us that when trouble comes, we cheerfully capitalize on these troubles as a chance for God to show his omnipotence. That means we continue to do the right thing, we trust God, and we wait for the miracles. Because if I'm trying to arrange things to get an outcome I want, I've basically tied God's hands. If I say, God, I'm going to arrange all this. Now, I never out and out say it, but if my actions demonstrate that, God's a perfect gentleman. And he says, Janet, you want to control this? I'll let you control it. Um, newsflash, it always look, works out better when I let him control it. I may not see it at the time. And the truth is, I'm, I may not see it in this lifetime, but I believe that the things that come to us when we place ourselves and these issues in God's hands are better than anything we could have planned. That's page 100 of the big book. Number five, we can pray for those who harm us. Um, e. Stanley Jones says that by praying for those who wrong us, the resentment is sterilized by the antiseptic of prayer. He advises to pray first, as soon as we feel the first tinge of a resentment. And that makes sense. Remember, if we try to do an inventory without bringing God into it, it's just psychology. Um, and in the chapter Freedom from Bondage on page 552, there's just a beautiful prayer to pray for people that we resent. And it says, we pray that they get everything we want for ourselves. And it says, do it for two weeks, even if you don't mean it. And it will change you. And I've tried it. And guys, it really does work. Um, number six, we can go beyond prayer. The big book says that we ask God to show us how we can be helpful to the person who has hurt us. We can do good to those who hurt us. So can we bring in the garbage cans of that neighbor we hate? Um, I remember when my son still lived at home, he was in high school and boy, he was an annoying little kid. And so sometimes 
you know, even through gritted teeth, I would go out to get myself a latte and I would bring him one because I would know he liked it. Um, and now that he's not living at home, I'm, I say like, thank God I was kind to him that, you know, that I don't have just bad memories. In fact, it's like God took some kind of cosmic eraser and erased the bad memories. Um, and the best example I can think of is being helpful to the people who've heard us. There was a book, a movie called The End of a Spear. It was about some missionaries who went out in South America, um, some country where um, the people were, I don't want to say not civilized, but um, just lived on the land and weren't used to other people coming in. And as soon as they got off the plane, they were killed. All the missionaries were killed. And what did their wives do? Their wives went back to these people who um, all had developed polio and they took care of them. I mean, that is something. They went beyond prayer and they cared for the people who had hurt their families. Um, remember, you know, that's to me, a, a strong example that I would aspire to be like that one day. But we think of other examples, right? Um, I think of in the Amish community, when some Amish girls were killed, the parents of those girls went to the family of the man who killed them, knowing that the family would need help. So number seven, we can forgive because God has forgiven us. We can think about what God has done for us. And here's something um, I read that I thought was beautiful. Think of the thousand times a day God manifests his love and faithfulness to you. As you think of his love for you, a feeling of humble gratitude will spring up within you. As you experience gratitude to God for all he has done in your life, you will realize that the people around you need to be treated with love and patience, just as God has treated you. Since God has been so patient with you, how can you be critical and impatient toward others? God has patiently led you to a deeper understanding of his truth. He has waited for your lagging understanding and faltering faith to catch up. So really, how will I respond to others whose understanding and faith are a bit behind mine? And it tells me I have to think of how God forgave me when I was a total train wreck. What we are not to do. Um, the big book cautions me against harboring resentments. I always think that's such a cool word, harbor. It reminds me of like a place where a ship can be safe in a storm. And how do I make myself a safe harbor for resentments so that anger and hate feel comfortable living in me? Um, well, one way is by reviewing these resentments over and over in my mind and re reviewing them over and over with other people under the guise of getting help or asking people to pray for that person, when really what I'm trying to do is get people to agree with my perception that that person's really a louse. Um, we're building our harbor when we do that. The best thing is to tell one person and ideally someone who doesn't know the person we resent. Um, I usually tell Melissa, but if it's someone she knows, I'll generally go to my sponsor instead because she doesn't like go to the meetings I go to or travel in the same circle. So I won't have like gossiped about someone. 
Um, sometimes we call someone before doing a resentment inventory saying that we just need to vent. But Tim Keller, one of my favorite spiritual authors, says that if we're angry with someone, we don't need to vent. We need to repent. So before we call each other to talk about like our lousy husbands, our, our lousy kids, our rotten bosses, um, we should do our resentment inventories and look for our parts. Number nine, we avoid retaliation and argument. So the big book makes it clear that avoiding retaliation is an essential ingredient in the cocktail of forgiveness. When someone wrongs us, there's like this unavoidable sense that this person owes us, like they've incurred a debt and we wanna make the other person pay that debt. We do that by hurting them, yelling them, making them feel bad or some way, demanding that they do something to make up for it, or just waiting and watching and hoping that something bad happens to them. Only after we see them suffer or pay us back in some way do we feel that the debt has been paid. So what's forgiveness? Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who has harmed us forever. Forgiveness means we give up the right to revenge either here or in the hereafter. I had a relative I was really mad at and I was kind to the person, but I just thought when this person dies, God's going to look at all the rotten things this person has done to me, and God's going to get that person on my behalf. And I realized that wasn't a very recover, good recovery attitude, um, but that's what I really wanted. So I just said a prayer. I said, God, when this person dies, anything that they've done bad toward me, don't hold it against them when you go to judge them. I gave up my right to cosmic forgiveness. My emotions weren't there, but I did it by my will. And ultimately my emotions caught up. And again, God took that cosmic eraser. Can't even remember the bad stuff. Number 10, we ask God to help us show the person the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. Again, that means we don't express ourselves or vent in order to feel better. E. Stanley Jones tells of a woman who was really angry at her husband who said, I think I'd be well if I could just once tell my husband to go to hell. And his comment was, perhaps she would have been relieved momentarily, but the resentments would fill up again and be ready for another spillover. Expression is not the solution. It's merely dealing with a symptom instead of the disease. So what does it mean to have toler tolerance, pity, and patience? I love Melissa's definition of tolerance, that my own threshold to withstand pain or sorrow is raised. Basically, I stopped being offended so easily. And pity, the, the better word now is like compassion. Again, we put ourselves in their shoes. And when we do that, I think that automatically gives us some patience, right? I don't have to have everything on my timetable. I can understand another person's needs. So, and I want to say um, just a couple words about forgiving ourselves because people usually ask about this. Like they ask, should I put myself on a resentment inventory? And the big book is silent on it. But honestly, if we resent ourselves, it's because we've done something wrong. So to do a resentment inventory is really awkward. So let me think of an example. Let's say I resent myself because I 
yelled at one of my kids. So I'd say, I re- who do I resent? Myself. Why? I yelled at one of my kids. What does it affect? I, I, I don't like, that's weird. What's my part? Well, I already said my part. I yelled at my kids. So I find a better way if I've done, if I resent myself because I've done something wrong, I really need to, to do a six and seven step. I need to in, go to God and admit it. Well, and really a fifth too, go to another person, admit what I've done, admit, admit it to God, ask God to remove the character defect. And if I need to make amends, make my amends. And then I am forgiven. Um, a lot of people say they have more trouble forgiving themselves than they do accepting God's forgiveness. But what really lies behind this idea of I can't forgive myself? According to Tim Keller, when we say I can't forgive myself, that's really an indication of pride because then I'm in essence saying that my judgment is more accurate than God's judgment. Remember, our big book tells us that it, you know if we're sorry, and have the honest desire to let God bring us to better things, we believe we have been forgiven. That's at the end of chapter five. Um, So if God forgives me um, and I can't forgive myself, then I'm acting like my own judgment holds more weight than God's. And again, the big book is clear that if we're sorry for what we've done, we'll be forgiven. So whenever I do this talk on resentment, I always close with the story of Corey Ten Boom, who um, this to me just exemplifies forgiveness and how I aspire to be. She is a woman, she was a Dutch Christian woman who was put in a concentration camp for hiding Jews in her house during um, World War II, during the Holocaust. So she got out and she went around talking about forgiveness. And so this is a story she told. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter bombed out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess, I said, God casts our sins into the deepest ocean gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their coats, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic piles of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. 
Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinged from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time he went on, I know I asked for forgiveness. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I who sins had every day to be forgiven and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who've injured us. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it was not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. God help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Every time I tell that story, I say, like, I have nothing more to say after that. Um, again, I just hope that in something tonight, it helps us all, including me, resolve resentments and learn to live in love and become more like the Corey Ten Booms in this world. Thanks.